Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for the New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's guest is Catherine O'Rourke, and her book is O'Neill on Architecture, published by the University of, of Texas Press in 2019. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so let's start with, can you tell the audience um, a little bit about yourself and your educational background? Okay, so I actually grew up in Houston, Texas, and um, I went to college at Wellesley, where I started to study architecture, and got really interested in architectural history there, and in part because I was studying on this beautiful campus, beautiful landscape, and um, really interesting um, buildings. And from there, I went on to graduate school uh, in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania uh, and got my master's and PhD in the history of art. And there I continued my study of architectural history, um, again, in a wonderful uh, environment um, to be studying and and with really great uh, professors and and mentors and friends. Oh, wow. So this book, what was your motivation for writing it? Right. So I, um, after I finished at Penn, I uh, got a job teaching here in San Antonio uh, at Trinity University, which was a, it, it is a small uh, liberal arts college. And I didn't really know that much about the university uh, when I applied for the job, you know, the academic job market, you end up applying uh, lots of different places. Um, but as I was starting to learn about it, I, I, I came to um, understand a little bit about the architect of uh, much of the campus who was uh, O'Neill Ford. Uh, but it wasn't until I, I came to, to be a, a professor here that I started to really appreciate Ford's work on the campus. Um, the site is really an amazing site. It's um, cut in part out of a, um, a, there's a great rock face that divides it, and it has a really steep escarpment that divides the campus uh, more or less east-west into two parts. Um, and, and Ford designed uh, the campus starting um Right around 1950, uh, as a as a the, the university had predated that uh, that date, but but was moving to this new campus, and um, he came uh, and and was hired and um, at the urging of a an architect called William Worcester, uh, who really encouraged the trustees to um, rather than bulldozing the site, making it really flat and level and putting a kind of axial hierarchical plan uh, down to let the hills design the buildings, as Worcester said. Uh, And Ford was a young architect who um, was very interested in history, but also in new technologies. And he uh, and the other architects that he worked with there um, were the, it seems like among the very first to use a construction technology uh, called the um, Utes Slick Lift Slab Construction Method, where they poured concrete slabs 
on the ground and then hoisted them into place and affixed them to, um, to steel beams. Uh, and so I, I started learning about this history, and that was in the 1950s. Um, I started learning about this history um, after I came to the campus to teach, and it was really in the course of um, walking on campus, walking to work every day, as I did when I first lived here, that I, I came to appreciate um, what an interesting and extraordinary place this was, in large part because of its landscape, but also because of its architecture and the relationship of the buildings to the site. Um, so, you know, I think architectural historians tend to get interested in wherever they are, right? They're, um, of course, we all have our own research that we're, we're working on, but, but we're also, many of us, I think, looking around the world a lot. And so that was um, what I was doing, and I, um, I, I just wanted to know more about where I was, and so I started doing research in the university archives uh, and also trying to um, find articles and speeches that Ford had written. So um, over the course of, of really the first five or so years that I was at Trinity, I was doing this and then um, got to a point where I thought, you know, I, I've learned enough and I've gathered enough material that um, this would be worth pulling together uh, in a book. And I, I should say that um, here in San Antonio and in Texas, Ford is considered a really important um, mentor and, um, and, and figure for a lot of architects um, particularly here in, in Central and South Texas, uh, who worked with him or were influenced by him. So he's a bit of a legend uh, here. And I was, um, and there, there, there are two, two great books on him that, that um, other people wrote, of course, but I was interested in um, revisiting his ideas and also um, hopefully adding to the existing scholarship, but by bringing his voice um, a little bit more fully into um, our conversation in the 21st century about architecture and, and about San Antonio. Um, so what other, um, now I'm not familiar, or wasn't mm -hmm. familiar before the book about him. Um, what other influences did he have on Texas architecture? Mm -hmm. So, um, so Ford, um, he was really a multifaceted architect. And, and um, I mentioned the, the sort of technological innovation that got a lot of attention in the national press um, for the university, um, almost as soon as uh, as soon as it started being used, he was also extremely interested, though, in architectural history. And from an early age, he um, he studied vernacular buildings here in Texas, but he also studied medieval architecture and Islamic architecture and colonial architecture in Latin America. And I think that um, that breadth, that broad um, interest, that richness. Um, that certainly informed his own practice, and it helped um, it, it, that in turn he really um, helped cultivate here an appreciation of what is distinctive about this place, right? Uh, about Texas, and also um, I think gave architects ways of um, of responding to the sort of dominant currents of international style modernism. Um, at mid-century and then after. So this, you know, manifests quite often in um, approaches to materials, um, using local materials, for example, um, the primacy that he placed on site and making buildings um, yield to their landscapes, be sensitive to their, um, to the ecological and, and the, the um, topographical and the the conditions of climate in which they are built. Those are things that are still, um, I think, very much a part of many practices uh, here. And of course, 
I have a lot of attention, lots of other places, but it was, it was, um, it, it was a very important part of his work. Um, the other thing that he did and part of his interest in history was that he was a real champion uh, of conserving the uh, colonial missions here in San Antonio. And we have, we have five uh, wonderful missions there now, um, UNESCO World Heritage Sites, but it was in large part because of him uh, and his, his wife and his wife's family that um, those missions uh, are, in, are in the very good um, sort of states of conservation that they are today. So he was a champion of these sorts of things. And I think really for a lot of people sort of opened their eyes to um, what is significant in, in architecture uh, here in, in Texas and, and sort of showed a way forward um, for, for innovative, um, responsive design but design that was also very, very much in dialogue with the major currents of um, modernism in the United States in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, well, my master's degree is in landscape architecture, but when you start talking about, mm-hmm. um, yeah, their first response to the university was to just level it. It even made me kind of go, mm-hmm. ugh. <laughs> right, then, exactly. So, <laughs> and then you said he really, you know, it, it's a little bit, well, it, it, they're both go hand in hand, but a little bit of landscape architecture too, citing the building. Um, sounds like that it was important to him. Was it important to him in his other projects as well? Can you think of something, another example of that? Oh, yes. And I should say um, in the 50s, especially Ford works very, very closely with two landscape architects called Arthur and Marie Berger. Uh, and and they are really interesting people to to know about. Um, if, if if you don't know about them, they um, were based in Dallas, and they were advocates already in the fifties of um, not necessarily xeriscaping, but the use of of plant material that was um, native, right to the to the place. Um, at Trinity, they created a cactus garden. Um, they used low water plants. The whole concept was to let what was um, native and what grew easily um, to be part of that landscape. And, and in some ways, there's some connection, maybe very broadly, to a picturesque tradition, but of course with, um, with the plants that, are, uh, that grow well uh, here in Texas. So he works with the burgers um, also in a number of private houses that he designs, and a whole other part of his um, career is, is designing, you know, in some cases, really large and elegant houses for private clients. Uh, and he works with them on, on some of those. And then later in his career, he works very closely with the landscape architect here in town called uh, Stuart King uh, at projects like um, uh, La Villita. La Villita was, uh, it was one of the earliest um, settlements by, by Europeans here, um, dating you know, all the way back uh, to, the, to the very early days of of San Antonio, but in 1939, Ford was actually, um, this what brought him to the city. He was hired to come and oversee a kind of um, conservation urban design project for La Villita, which ended up turning it into a kind of, today it's a sort of tourist center, uh, but it um, the idea was to in some way evoke what small town life in, in 18th uh, or 19th century Texas would have been like. Um, and in, in that scheme already from 1939, when you look at the drawings and his notes on them already, he's calling for, again, these kinds of um, native plants uh, and, and vegetation that is, is local. Uh, and that, that continues. And that's, I think, a, a really, really important part of his legacy here, because we, um, as in many parts of the country, of course, are, um, 
very sensitive to water and to the availability uh, of water for, for plants. And uh, I think, you know, of course, trying to live in a way that is um, a little less uh, damaging to the earth. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a huge part of that, um, that tradition and legacy for him. Um, yeah, uh, I, I did a whole uh, project on, yeah, the, the native plants here in mm-hmm. Key Largo and, um, and their importance and significance to the ecology. And mm-hmm. uh, for me, it was for the birds flying through. Um, right. But, um, but yeah, uh, how that's interesting. Uh, you know, this is, uh, but that's nothing new that people have been saying, yeah, you know, being sensitive to the environment's really important for uh, all of us. Right. Um, him too. And he was trying to like, bring it back. Well, that kind of brings you to a question here. Um, in your book on, it's an intro on page seven. Mm-hmm. And um, you seem to be saying that, you know, the, the, the relationship to architecture, to the other arts and the value to social sciences, um, you know, that uh, to not let that relationship be broken. Did he, in his work, how did he uh, bring together, because you said that you were, you got your master's degree in art though. Uh, it's my, my, um, all of my training really is in, in art history, right? I've always focused on architecture, but it's um, been from a art historical framework. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So how did he um, bring art and bring the sciences together into his projects and his architectural mm-hmm. designs? So um, one of the most important ways that, that this art is part of his, um, his work is um, through his collaborations with artists and craftspeople, uh, and foremost among them was his own brother, Lynn Ford, uh, who was really one of the great um, uh, sculptors, I think. You can call him a sculptor. Many people would probably refer to him as a craftsman, uh, but of 20th century Texas. And um, Lynn Ford, and I should say their whole family was was creative. I mean, they, they got this from their mother from a very early age. Um, but, but Lynn Ford made these really beautiful works, particularly in wood, um, very abstract um, carvings that repeat often repetitive um, patterns over long, narrow slats of wood, for example, but each slat then having a different pattern. Um, and so, and, and you find, and, and, and also works in, in lead, in metal, um, and in many of Ford's great projects, um, the private houses certainly already in the 50s, um, the uh, civic complex, the city hall, for example, in, in the little town of Denton, Texas, the civic center there, um, in the buildings at Trinity from the 1960s, which are actually pretty different from those works of the 50s that I was describing earlier. Um, Ford's work is, uh, Lynn Ford's work is present in doors, in um, screens, in decorative um, panels. Uh, his brother, O'Neill, also worked closely with ceramicists, uh, Martha Mood and Beaumont Mood. Um, he worked uh, in various projects with um, Isaac Maxwell, who did um, wonderful work in mosaic. Um, one of the things that is really distinctive about Ford's work, part of what makes it so special, is that um, he, I always, I tend to think of him as a kind of symphony conductor, right? Ford buildings have a very distinctive quality. You know you're in an O'Neill Ford building, but he's not a star architect. It's not the sort of heavy-handed thing. It's like he, he, he sort of he lets the other artists speak and and manages to pull together these um, different distinct elements, each of them very recognizable as the work of these different masters, in this wonderful harmony. Um, in buildings that are are restrained, 
they are understated, but they are very elegant. They are very precise. And the, um, the precision of, of, of craftsmanship and work and the attention to materials, all of that is just um, really, really fine. Uh, in these in these buildings, and um, and that's that's also part of the legacy, right? This this attention to craft uh, and and what materials do. Um, it it really does go hand in hand with his rational self, um, his interest in exploring, uh, of course, the new technologies of lift slab. He is very very interested in as well the. Um, uh, concrete shell construction that is uh, perhaps the best known in the work of the Mexican architect Felix Candela. Um, Ford is, works with Candela um, and certainly in, in a project, a famous project in Denton. Also, um, he's influenced, uh, uses that technology at the big um, Texas Instruments semiconductor building uh, in Dallas which is a hugely innovative and interesting project that was entirely for, of course, Texas Instruments, right, which is, is building these semiconductors and is at the heart of cutting-edge science and also, interestingly, the, the defense industry in the Cold War. Um, but so, so that curiosity, that interest in materials, that interest in um, different ways of solving problems, that's a, that has a kind of scientific um, bent to it. Uh, and... Um, I, you know, I could go on. There are other examples, but um, I think that's part of what makes Ford really an important modern architect. That we see in his work these themes that we think of as characterizing modern architecture more broadly: the interest in history, the interest in using new technologies in artistic ways, the concern with the other arts, um, uh, and 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 certainly this interest in um, in science, and also we should say in society, because that's, that's what he's also thinking about as well. So he's a little bit of an, an urban designer too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we don't have like giant, um, huge, great, um, examples of his urbanism, but he is, he is certainly thinking at a social scale. Uh, and he had very strong views on, on cities and on preservation here in San Antonio. He, was one of the um, people who led the fight against the building of a, a freeway right through, you know, as happened, unfortunately, in so many U.S. cities, um, right through historic neighborhoods, really highly destructive. Um, and that was a, a fight that actually he and his wife ran for city council on an anti-freeway platform that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court to give you a sense of how what a big deal that was. Um, and he was also, um, he got in big trouble really for criticizing, um, a lot of the things that were happening in urban planning in the sixties and, and, and lost, you know, some important commissions because he spoke out in favor of parks and in favor of human scale and pedestrians and history and preservation, things that stood, um, or were imagined, right. To stand in the way of so-called progress as it was understood, um, sort of in the mainstream at that point. Oh, well, to that point, um, I could appreciate that a little bit because <laughs> um, <laughs> driving through Miami mm-hmm. traffic this evening was a bit mm-hmm. challenging. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, how uh, pedestrian walking ways and uh, parks are finally now kind of going, people going, yeah, it's, you know, that, that is a smart thing to do after all. Yes. Well, and I was just, I just learned uh, or was hearing about this, that, the, the United Nations, a huge group of nations got together and, and, and affirmed that um, 
preservation and, and, and the conservation of historic buildings um, is an essential ingredient to, to urban vitality and to have that kind of consensus on something, you know, really only 50 years after the consensus was entirely in the opposite direction. Um, so we're at a really interesting moment in that. And I think that's part of why Ford feels really relevant today, um, because he's speaking about ecological, I mean, he didn't use the word ecology so much, but but things that we think of as ecological or climate crisis uh, kinds of topics. Um, clearly, he was on the right side of issues um, with respect to these freeways and, and human scale and, and um, the sort of structure of cities. I should say, though, at the same time, he certainly had plenty of suburban clients and, you know, in his own practice and did advance the suburbanization in various ways. Well, it's just kind of give and take. He's kind of got to do do a little bit of everything, too. Yeah, right. There's a pragmatic part. <laughs> so it was interesting to kind of talk about that because um, in our class that I, I've been in and we're talking about, you know, it's art, art is left and right brain. You've got to be able to do it mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. That's right. And he, um, you know, I think he um, he has sort of multiple faces in the in the history. And I, I should say the the book um, that I did is is it's an really a edited volume of his writings and speeches uh, from 1932 until um, the very end of his life uh, in the early 80s. And um, and I, I as you know wrote this introduction and. Um, have a little introductory gloss to each of the texts uh, that that were his. Um, but one of the things that you know you sort of see when you when you look across the career is that he it's he's hard to pin down, right? He doesn't fit a lot of the conventional um, sort of brackets or molds. And I, I mean, to me, that's part of what makes him such an interesting um, architect. And again, someone who I, I think is is really worth knowing about and studying for people who are interested in the history of 20th century modernism um in the united states yeah definitely uh, well it sounds like you know his buildings are important because you don't know that that's his style in a sense that's kind of a, that's a true accomplishment yes exactly and and as i said there is a very distinctive um you, you know you know you're in an o'neill ford building but he's not a sort of style heavy architect oh. So it talked about here a little bit about his um, on chapter, well, I'm not sure, organic building. Organic. Um, and uh, so tell me more about about this chapter. Why did you write it? Okay, so organic um, organic building is one of his um, one of his uh, early essays from 1932, and it is a, um, a really really fascinating piece. It's one of the first things uh, that he publishes as a young architect when he is um, uh, beginning to set out on his own uh, after working in the office of David R. Williams. Uh, and it's a, it's a piece that I found, um, you know, one of the most intriguing of all the ones that I, uh, that I read of all of his speeches and writings. Um, he talks about the need to, um, to, embrace certain principles of, of what he calls functionalist architecture, which was the term that was widely used for um, what we sometimes call international style architecture in the 1930s. Um, and so that is in there. And he's clearly um, at various points um, evoking the Corbusier and the, um, the famous um, Towards a New Architecture manifesto that Corbusier wrote in the early 20s. Um, 
but what was maybe most striking to me uh, in that in that particular work was the way that he spoke out again about um, conservation of the land uh, and about the landscape. And he um, is extremely critical of what he um, locates as a sort of um, pioneer mentality. And by that, he means Anglo settlers moving across North America. And um, what he really regards as a, a you know, destruction of the landscape, a willful disregard um, of natural beauty and a kind of abuse of the land. Um, and, and to read that, you know, from someone in Texas, frankly, in 1932 was, um, was quite astounding, right? Because even, even today, that's a sort of um, controversial approach to take. And he certainly risked with that um, alienating, isolating prospective clients and, and colleagues as well. But um, he never had any problem speaking out and talking about um, what he, he believes strongly in. And um, over and over and over in the writings, you hear this uh, theme repeated, this um, real anger about the, um, the loss of landscape. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Oh, that's so interesting. And uh, carrying it forward to today, we're still having to speak out um, about, uh, and now it's become a, a, a more of a crisis with, you know, sea level rise, et cetera, and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, yeah. Yeah, it is. I now, mean, it, now, now it's in vogue. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But to imagine this being written um, so long ago, really, and, and also, frankly, in a culture where that was, you know, kind of impossible to imagine people talking about in that way. Well, that definitely took real courage. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he seemed to, he seemed to be fearless. <laughs> um, so tell me what's um, another one of your favorite projects by him that you um, included in this book. Um, so, so one of the other um, really wonderful texts is um, from the mid 1960s. This is a speech that he uh, gives it at Rice University in Houston. It was part of a series uh, of lectures called um, The People's Architects. And um, in it, he he repeats some of these themes about, about landscape, but um, he also talks very emphatically about civil rights and comes out very strongly in favor of civil rights and is critical of um, of 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 segregation and of an attitude, any kind of um, attitude that would um, restrain individual freedoms and liberties and very clearly equates the way that we treat the landscape and treat the built environment with how we treat each other. Um, and it's, 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 it's still stirring. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to say it feels newly relevant now um, that we need to say these things all over again. Um, but again, it was it was astounding to think of him standing up in, in segregated Houston and saying this, of course, to an all white audience in an extremely privileged environment um, and just just coming out and doing that. And again, that that's risk taking there. Um, he he had um, in his clients 
his friends, people who are also very much um, progressive in their political thinking. Uh, one of the most important was um, Eric Johnson, who was uh, mayor of Dallas and helped lead um, the desegregation process there, which was extremely difficult and painful. Um, and and who also was the uh, one of the leaders of Texas Instruments. Uh, and and to read Johnson's um, remarks about about civil rights is also, you know, fascinating. And and you begin to see that Ford um, existed in a kind of constellation of people who were um, really trying to advance um, civil rights and a very progressive social agenda. The other, the other uh, really important figures in all of this actually were, um, were the Johnsons were president and Mrs. Johnson uh, and, and Lady Bird Johnson in particular, um, knew Ford and admired his work. Uh, and of course, um, uh, probably Johnson's greatest legacy, of course, is the, the shepherding of the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. What's interesting, I thought was just what you said about how we treat the land is uh, also relative to how we uh, treat each other. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's And he, Ford was, this was totally clear in his mind. Um, and that there was a kind of analogous relationship between um, between what we did to nature and um, and how we structured society and um, kept people in or out, as it were. Uh, either like uh, build bridges and connectivity or uh, put up walls. Right, exactly. And, and you know, what is, I think, you know, Ford would have said this too, what is the most, you know, is, is profit going to be the most important thing or is, is doing the right thing the most important thing? Um, and, and that's what, you know, I think he drives a lot of a lot of what he's thinking about in different ways. And he, again, he he had extremely affluent clients and connections certainly, uh, but but had no hesitation in going against the grain. Well, he seemed to have made it anyway. And I was thinking about that. You know, he was opposed to the highway, but you know, a highway is just a flat wall. <laughs> yes, that's right. But a highly destructive one. <laughs> but a very destructive one. Yeah, it's probably scarier. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And it's again, it's so interesting as cities now are, you know, in some cases taking down their freeways or trying to find ways to cap them or um, to mitigate the, the damage, right? And we're, um, you know, as we've said, trying to make cities more friendly to pedestrians and bikers and people. And to, uh, yeah, have a people-friendly city. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of reminds me a, a little bit in the Keys. Um, you know, a lot of people pass through down here and go straight to Key West and Really, I think one of the one of the reasons why it's because it's so popular is because, and I enjoy going down there too, is because it's walkable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, and I think that that's um, you know there are the environments that people are routinely drawn to are those where it's easy to be right, where you don't have to get in a car, um, where there's a sense that um, you know buildings exist in in you know in a way that. Uh, is supportive of the kind of basic activities um, of our lives. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, I'm going to skip to another chapter here. Mm-hmm. I just thought this was really cute. Um, Imagineering. Yes. Right. Imagineering. So that's a that's a really interesting um, article um, in which he's he's talking to young architects and um, and engineers, and this kind of goes back to the kind of technology side of it. But but it's a great piece because. Um, he 
you know, on the one hand is, is this sort of, I mean, truly internationally for a moment, you know, internationally celebrated architect because of lift slab. Um, and he's invited to, you know, speak in London and gets these, you know, various engagements. He teaches at, you know, lots of fancy, um, institutions of the East coast. Uh, but what he comes back to in all of it is saying, yeah, but all of the slide rules, of course, the thing about slide rules, all the calculations, um, those are all fine, but, but you have to, you have to have some art to it. Right. And there has to be a basic sort of common sense and understanding about the physical world, right. The way that buildings stand up about the way materials, um, function and, and, and the, the nature of the materials. Um, and, and that, that, you know, in the absence of, um, of that, that the engineering isn't going to get you to the art. Now he, he admires engineers tremendously. There are several, uh, that he names at various points that he just, whose work he just loves. Um, but it's really those who, who, you know, touch that, um, aesthetic moment, right. Who, who reach that sort of aesthetic height, um, in, in their in their designs so um again i think it's he's a, he's he's such a um fascinating case study in the ways in which the sciences and the arts and humanistic concerns and social and political concerns were coming together and and he he wasn't you know the only person by any means who was somehow doing all this but he's one that um again i think through the writings through the speeches, we we can understand this very interesting moment in the middle of the 20th century in the United States when so much um, is in flux and so much is at stake. Right? It's it's the Cold War. It's a period of obviously tremendous social change, um, changes as we've been talking about to cities and to the landscape, um, but also um, a moment where perhaps one sort of way of doing things thing is going out. Uh, and another is coming in and um, all of it under the, you know, sort of cloud of, of the Cold War and the anxieties about um, about atomic weapons. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of destruction against the environment, trying to conserve the environment. Right. And also architecture. That's right. And also, of course, the, the very, you know, real fear that uh, many people lived with of, of, of nuclear proliferation. Oh, and that whole backdrop and how it influenced him. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I have interest. What do you, how do you see um, a professional, what kind of professional architect or even landscape architect, what can they gain from, from reading this book? Mm-hmm. What perspective do you think they could get? You know, I think it's always helpful to, um, hear how other people have tried to solve problems at other times um, because so much of architecture is about problem solving. I, I, and that's one of the things I admire so much about architects is that they, um, that they, they have to work with whatever the conditions are, right? Whether it's the site or the budget or the materials or the client or whatever it is, and they have to come up with a solution. And I think um, there's value in seeing how, another person who was obviously quite successful and influential um, was also wrestling with problems um, and was also, uh, you know, frustrated because one of the things that comes through in, in some of the writings is, is his real frustration with the state of the world, um, which everybody can identify with, of course, some level. And yet the great hope 
that he maintains, the great hope that he has in art and indeed in, in, in people uh, to, to make the world better, right? That sense of, um, of architects having a larger calling. And, you know, I mean, there are certainly plenty of architects who, who don't feel that, you know, maybe that's not why they were drawn to architecture, but I think there are a lot who do, right? There is, um, it's a tremendously optimistic profession in certain respects. The, the belief that through design, through through landscape, through building, through thinking about cities, designing them well, that, that we can make a better world. And I think that's part of what um, comes through really clearly in Ford and, uh, and is, is, is worth uh, revisiting, right? Even though the challenges um, in some ways may be very different today, they're not always so different. Just just uh, different characters. Yes, that's right. And, and certainly the profession has changed enormously since he was working and, um, and there are, are new pressures and uh, new stresses. But um, I think that that fundamental optimism is there. Um, and it's, it's a good reminder, too, that, um, you know, some of the problems that we're wrestling with today are, are not new. Right? I think in some ways that can be kind of a comfort. Yeah, that's true. And, and I think when you're talking about him, it's like, you know, the, uh, inspirational, the, the courage to just stand up and, you mm-hmm. know, you know, I, I go back to a little bit of Harry Potter book. I always love this quote, you know, there's, it's, uh, the choice between, uh, to do what's easy and what's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and he lost, he lost clients. He lost commissions following that guide. Uh, <laughs> and that's true. There are always consequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's go to, how about this chapter? Uh, the, it's kind of interesting. This is a nice little end quote here. Uh, what's the end of the beginning or, or uh, the end of a beginning? <laughs> the end of a beginning. So that's, um, that is a, a, a talk from, um, 1967. And that was actually the commencement address at Trinity university. Ford was, um, invited to give this lecture, um, he had and his colleagues had been working on the campus, building it almost continuously um, from the early '50s into the late '60s. There, and that's that's why he calls it the end of the beginning. It's, he sees it as the kind of end of this this new campus, right? And this new um, an institution who's who's sort of uh, um, the early phase of its new incarnation is wrapping up, uh, and. It's a, it's a great talk if you are really interested in the campus and want to learn how he thought about the design and its history. Um, what is also wonderful about it is that he talks implicitly about the importance of having a great client. Uh, and I often find myself repeating you know, the idea that, that great architecture requires a great client. Uh, and and that, that to be a great client is hard work. Quite often, certainly in the case of Trinity in the 50s and 60s, it meant taking risks because they created a campus that looked very different from um, certainly almost every college campus in Texas and and many in other parts of the country. Um, And a willingness to, um, you know, to to forge ahead, to do bold things. And he he, um, really, really makes the case that there was um, a kind of uh, co-evolution between the university and the, the campus. And he ends up calling Trinity the University of Positive Progressive Protest, which is a very, um, it's a great compliment uh, coming from him. 
and that that he frames it in terms again of a kind of productive resistance against the norm, uh, and and I think that's um you know it's it's inspiring to to think about and also you know kind of a if if there are any prospective architectural patrons out there who might pick up this book, um, something to think about as well. What is what is your role if you are so fortunate to be in a position to be able to to hire an architect? Um, I love that speech also because he he opens it by talking about Thomas Jefferson actually because he he starts writing it when he is uh, coming to the end of a, a term teaching at the University of Virginia, which of course um, Jefferson designed, and he has just enormous enormous admiration uh, for Jefferson uh, as an architect, but also again as a kind of polymath. Right, um, Ford talks about his his botany and, 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 and his writings and his command of language. Uh, and the fact that he, Ford, seems to you know, see this connection between the early founding of the Republic, the highest ideals um, embodied in, in Jefferson's work, and this you know, pretty small, relatively unknown university in San Antonio, Texas, that, that sense that somehow that great work of the Enlightenment uh, is is being carried on, right? And that there is a connection between um, the Declaration of Independence and the spirit of positive progressive protest that he believes existed um, at Trinity. Oh, that's just, oh, so Thomas Jefferson, the famous uh, memorial there, the rotund, the circle, mm-hmm, the rotunda, exactly right, right, and the 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 academical village, right, that that uh, Jefferson talks about, the the library, and then the the buildings that form um, frame that sort of mall there on the oldest part of the UVA campus uh, with the different the different departments, right. It's really a kind of um, a landscape of the liberal arts. What other interesting factoids did you find out that surprised you about him? Mm. Um, you know, this was really interesting. We were talking a moment ago about nuclear weapons. Um, so at the 1960 AIA, the American Institute of Architects um, annual convention, Ford was one of the people who was chosen as a respondent to um, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, who was, of course, one of the people who helped develop um, the atomic bomb, but then also thereafter went and um, really devoted the rest of his life to, to working for, for peace and, and, and non-combat uses of, um, of nuclear technologies. Uh, and, uh, you know, that really, for me, put into um, perspective how, how significant Ford was in his own time and what his colleagues thought of him to, to, to ask him to respond to this person who was world famous and who had done so much, of course, to shape um, the 20th century. Um, that, that was, that was amazing to see. And, and, and Ford, um, you know, I think he was very sensitive to the, you know, issues that he was being asked to address there. Uh, and interesting also, I should, should note that the American Institute of Architects wanted to hear from a major scientist at their convention. Again, I think it's a sense of the sort of ways in which, um, the sciences and the arts and design were all, you know, intermingling in that period. Um, but Ford, you know, he comes out again very clearly and uh, unsurprisingly um, uh, in favor of um, 
using the, the money, the resources, the knowledge that went into the making, of course, of those weapons for other purposes uh, and, and redirecting the energies of the United States away from the Cold War. Oh, instead of uh, destruction and will against nature. Uh, exactly. Uh, trying to, to build something positive like a, a, a university campus. <laughs> For example. <laughs> right. 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 Mm -hmm. oh that's fascinating um well uh catherine thank mm -hmm. you so much for being here today i know we've taken up a lot of your time oh thank um, you for having me it's a pleasure this is this is really awesome i i did not know him before uh i got i read your book um can you tell us uh tell us some about um, interesting projects that you're working on now or any other interesting facts about him that uh that our audience should know um let's see i guess my my to, to take that first question, um, the project that I'm starting to work on actually has come in part out of my, my study of Ford. Um, I'm very interested in um, the dynamics of humanism at, at mid-century in modern architecture and how a lot of actually the themes and the topics that we have been talking about here were also operating or, um, or of, of interest to other architects um, in that, that time. Um, and uh, I should say the first, the first book that I wrote uh, very, is very different from, from O'Neill Ford on architecture and was a, a book about 20th century architecture in Mexico City. Um, and much of my research has been on, on, on Mexican modernism. Uh, but sort of between the two of those, one of the things that, that I've been thinking about a lot is the way that architects uh, deal with history and deal with the past in the 20th century. Uh, and the, the ways that their understandings of the past or their imaginations of, in some cases, very, very distant pasts um, intersect with their concerns about modern society and modern life. Uh, and so those are some of the things I'm thinking about in, 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 in buildings um, by Franklin Wright, by Eric Mendelssohn, um, by Camille Corbusier, uh, and um, as well as by um, Eladio Dieste, who was uh, very, I'm thinking about a lot right now because I just got back from Uruguay several weeks ago. He was a Uruguayan architect, excuse me, an engineer who created beautiful, beautiful um, works in brick um, using very thin shell um, construction and, um, and, and curvature and really sophisticated um, calculations, but to create extraordinarily uh, beautiful spaces. He was someone I think that um, Daniel Ford would have admired uh, and liked very much. So that's that's sort of how <laughs> how my work is evolving at the moment. So uh, to leave it, is there, is there any other little factoid about O'Neill that uh, students would like to know? Um, let's see. You know, one thing that uh, that we haven't mentioned that I think is is neat to know about is that he was very interested in in students and in education and. Um, that was just a pervasive concern all the way through his life. Um, near the very end of it, he um, did a little television program here in San Antonio with, with school-age children called Lessons in Looking. Uh, and, and part of that um, sort of transcript is actually reproduced in the book. Uh, but it's wonderful to read this because he's talking in really simple language to these kids about how to see, right? lessons in looking, that this is, this is how you start to, to see the world um, and also to understand it in, in material ways. And he talks to them about things like mud and bricks and stone 
uh, and things that we don't even you know necessarily notice, right, or maybe take for granted. And there's just these delightful exchanges between him and the children um, that I think are are valuable for many of us to revisit as we think about how we see and and perceive the world and um, and the very sort of fundamental stuff uh, of architecture and of, of making. <laughs> making stuff, uh, Lincoln logs. Yes, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And train sets. Right. Um, well, again, uh, Catherine, thank you so much um, for being here today, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being here today. Again, this is Tricia from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for the New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today's book was O'Neill Ford on Architecture by Catherine O'Rourke, published by the University of Texas Press in 2019. Thank you so much.